Well, let's pray again, shall we? Father, we are grateful for your grace, for this love that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for uh, the, uh, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is our high priest, that we have access to you through Christ. Father, thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for this remarkable epistle to the Hebrew believers. And I pray that we would benefit now from our study, that the Holy Spirit would use the word of God to challenge the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are finding it helpful, at least I am, uh, as we approach this most remarkable book of Hebrews, this letter written to a group of believers who were struggling in their faith. They had accepted Christ. They were walking with Christ. They were doubting Christ. They had confusion theologically, and it seemed comfortable to them to go back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is challenging them not to do this. Now, they thought that there were a number of reasons not to be impressed with Christ. They thought maybe angels were greater than Christ, and Moses was greater than Christ, and that the priesthood of Aaron was greater than Christ. And the writer is trying to convince them that all of these things are surpassed by Jesus Christ, that he is supreme. And so the supremacy of Christ is our topic. Now, I've found it helpful uh, for us to lay a foundation of our studies by going to the Old Testament and visiting some of the historical moments in Israel of old, primarily while they were in the desert under Moses' leadership. And it often sets the stage for what the writer in Hebrews is dealing with. Today, I want to do that again, and I want to go to a most remarkable story in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. This is to illustrate one of the key points that the writer is going to show the Hebrews about what it means to be a high priest. In Numbers chapter 16, we don't have a lot of time to develop the context. Just know, we remind ourselves that Moses has is leading the children of Israel. God has established Aaron in his priesthood. Aaron is the religious spiritual leader of the Israelites. There's a group of men who have surfaced in leadership in the community, and they've evidently been watching the priests and watching Aaron carry on the role of spiritual intercession between God and man there at the tabernacle that they have set up in the wilderness And they decided that they wanted to become priests. The leader of this group of people who leads a group, we call it a rebellion. The leader's name is Korah. And so we often refer to number 16 as Korah's Rebellion. We're going to read some bits and pieces of it, but I want you to keep your mind engaged and kind of picture what's happening. Moses is the leader over all the nation of Israel. They're in the wilderness. They have this place of worship. Aaron is the one who intercedes on behalf of the people with God as the priest and high priest. There are other priests that have been appointed. And Korah says this, Numbers chapter 16, verse 2. And they, Korah and his cohorts, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel 
250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So these were fairly important people among the congregation of Israel. Verse 3, number 16. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now, let's just stop there and take this in. There's Moses, there's Aaron, Korah, his counterparts, and 250 of these leaders have gathered And they come and they get in Moses' face and they say, what makes you think you guys are the main leaders here? We want to lead also. We want to be spiritual leaders here. And Moses did something that we never do. He fell on his face in front of him. I mean, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? I thought about doing it this morning, but then I'd have to get back up and (laughs) it's almost that bad anymore. I mean, if I was on my face up here before the Lord... Before, if I was like crying out and got on my face on the floor, it's like, oh, everybody would have their attention focused, wouldn't they? So you need to know, you need to understand something. When Korah said this, Moses knew what was going to happen. He fell on his face because Moses knew something. And this is, this is one of the main points in Hebrews chapter five this morning. And it is this especially under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, where God had appointed priests and of them selected a high priest to represent the people to God. You didn't just go gallivant and waltzing into the presence of God. You didn't do this. You didn't just say, hey man, we're all holy here. I want to be the priest today. I want to represent the people. Moses falls on his face before the Lord, and look what he says. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, in verse 5, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near. That one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them, these holders, metal holders. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses. Keep that phrase in mind. God chooses the high priest. He doesn't choose himself. The man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. That's a warning that Moses is giving him. And then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them? They were already serving in religious functions. Now they wanted to be priests and ultimately a high priest. And he had brought them and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? You see, now we want to be priests. We decided we want to be priests. So what does a priest do? Let's just answer this question. 
What does a priest do? When I was a kid in Illinois, South Chicago, my buddies had a priest. I didn't have a priest. They didn't know it. I didn't communicate it very well to them. I was a priest, and I had a high priest already in the presence of God. But my buddies went to a church that had priests. There were a lot of these churches in our area. And every so often, and often they would snicker about it or act cool about it, their parents would make them go see the priest and meet in the confessional booth. They had to go in, and after their mass and so forth, they would go, and the priest would be in this booth. There would be curtains, and hard to see a little bit, and I only got in the back of their church once, and it scared me. It was so different than our Bible church. And they would sit in their booth, and what would they do? What do you do to a priest? You confess your sins to a priest, okay? Now, I'm not putting these guys down. I'm just saying this is what they did. They had a priest, and they confessed their sins to the priest. And what was their understanding that the priest would do with their sins? What would he do? The priest would then represent them to God so that they could be forgiven of their sin. That's what a priest does. A priest makes a way to God for sinners. Now, what they did was based somewhat on the Old Testament model. The idea that, that you can just lallygag and waltz your way into the presence of God is something that is not true. Even today, you, can't, you cannot go into the presence of God. You'll be disintegrated. You have to have a priest. You have to have a representative. Now, at this time... God would meet with the high priest. Remember, we talked about the Holy of Holies last week. He would come into that outer court of the tabernacle, then into that that holy place where the laver was and so forth. Then he would go into that 15 foot by 15 foot area called the Holy of Holies. He only did it once a year, and it was on the Day of Atonement, and there he would represent the people. That's what priests did. And because it was a position of honor, evidently Korah and his buddies thought, I want to be that guy. I want to represent the people. I want to be a priest and a high priest. We'll talk about this more because you'll need to know that in Hebrews chapter 5, the the writer is just introducing this subject. And then he's going to pick it up again in chapter 7. So he's introducing something in chapter 5 that he's going to go into great deal in in chapter 7. Great detail in chapter 7. But one of the things we'll talk about is how what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, one of the things that he would do is he would have two goats. You can read about this in Leviticus 16. You ever heard the phrase, the scapegoat? Well, the priest would, the high priest would take a goat, he would take two goats, and one goat, he would take his killing knife, and he would cut his throat, and the blood would flow. Why? Because the wages of sin is always death, and it takes blood to pay for sin. It was a picture. It was symbolic of what ultimately would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the one goat had to die for the sins of the people. The other goat, the priest would take his hands, put it on its head, and he would pray, and he would pray a prayer of transferring the sin of the people onto the goat. That's pretty weird. There's a lot of weird things in the Old Testament. 
And he would symbolically place the sins of the people of Israel on the goat. One goat had to die for it. The other goat would be released into the wilderness to be seen no more. A picture of God separating us from our sin because of the blood sacrifice. God was setting a stage to be fulfilled. But listen, you didn't volunteer to go in and be that priest. You didn't go before the people. If you would have gone into the Holy of Holies on your own, you'd have been struck dead. Only the chosen high priest could go there. That's what Korah and his buddies are wanting to do. Let's get back to our story in Numbers 16. He says, he says to them, uh, is it a small thing, verse 9, that you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord? Is that, is that piddly? That was important stuff. And he's brought you near to himself and your brethren. And now you want to be a priest also? Therefore, he said, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? You see, Moses and Aaron were chosen by God. These people wanted to choose themselves. So, so Moses sets up this thing, get your, get your lavers, get fire in it, get incense in it, and tomorrow morning, meet back here at the tabernacle, and let's jump ahead. Let's jump ahead to verse 28. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. Now, this next line in this verse is important with, in relation to Hebrews 5. For I have not done them of my own will. Moses didn't appoint himself. Remember that? Aaron didn't appoint himself. God appointed him. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So here's the contest. The contest is Korah and all of his buddies with their fire. If the Lord accepts you and allows you to draw, if you end up not dying today and you die of old age or of natural causes like a car accident, then I'm wrong and I'm out of here. But look what he says. If these men die naturally, verse 29, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Then that will be the answer, that you can be the priest and I am no longer the leader. But the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the pit. Then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord and that they're in it with pride and arrogance. Now it came to pass as he finished, Moses finished speaking, verse 31, all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. Kabam! I think that's an incredible picture. Now I don't really know how it worked. Now God had told them to back up. God told Moses, you tell everybody to get back. I'm about to do something here. And there's Korah and all his buddies around their tent. And God opens the earth. And I just wonder what the geological physics of that was. That the whole camp could hold together, but he could open up. Was it like a sinkhole and then everything just sloughed in on top of him? Was it a crack? I mean, there they are. We want to be priests holding up their unholy fire. The ground opens. In they go. The ground closes settled. Wow. Then the 250 guys and their families, God, God targets their tents and he burns them up with fire that comes down from the sky. And then a whole bunch of people rebel and mouth off to Moses. You can't do that. And God says, you, you got a disease and 14,000 people die in a plague then. 
all because they wanted to be the high priest. They wanted to be a priest. They wanted to represent God before men, and they were not chosen. That is a profound and powerful story. And as we turn to Hebrews 5, and as you get your pencil and paper ready, because we need to click this off, we are going to be introduced now to a teaching from the writer of Hebrews to the Hebrew believers where he is setting the stage to convince the Hebrew believers that their high priest is Jesus and no other do not leave him. They want to go back to Judaism. They are concerned that Jesus isn't of the line of Aaron. They are concerned about Jesus. Is is he even higher than an angel? He became a man and he's going to show them. And and what's going to happen here? And he already introduced the subject of this thing of us having a high priest in Christ in chapter 4. In fact, let's reread verse 14 and 15 and 16, chapter 4 of Hebrews Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up on your confession of following Christ. We have a high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is an important point. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In his humanity, he felt it. But he never sinned. He can relate to us. Therefore, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, a place where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. These are precious verses. He, it's almost as though the writer, though, can, can read into the mind of the Hebrew believers and he can hear them being skeptical about Jesus being this high priest. And so as we move into chapter 5, and remember the chapter and verse divisions were not inspired of the Holy Spirit, he, he, he wants to remind them of the basics of what, what a high priest did, what qualified a guy to be a high priest. So I'm calling this High Priest Criteria 101. Now listen to this. Here's the thing. We're going to work through the first 11 verses here in the next couple minutes, and you'll basically be able to follow it. It's going to introduce some stuff to us that's a little bit hard to understand, but here's what's going to happen. He gets through the first 11 verses explaining to them about what a high priest is, how it relates to Jesus Christ, and then it's like something else came to his mind, and then he says, but you don't even understand this stuff because you're babes on the milk of the word, and you ought to be on the meat of the word, and then he gets into chapter 6, and he has another warning to them, because his mind is whirling now, evidently, and then he gets back to chapter 7, and he's going to reteach, only in way more detail, everything he just taught in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So this is our introduction to chapter 7. So you could like go to sleep or draw pictures and just make it here for the chapter 7 sermon, or, or... You could listen carefully and prepare your heart for chapter 7. That's what he's doing with his listeners, with the the recipients are being, the stage is being set for further explanation about this priestly role. I've already burned up my time. You listen closely and you can get this. We're in Hebrews chapter 5. He's talked about this beloved high priest that we can come to who sympathizes on our weaknesses. And now in the first four verses of chapter five, he is going to click off 
the criteria for what makes a high priest qualified. You want to be a high priest? Here's what it it entails. First of all, verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Let's stop there. The first thing he wants them to know is that he is selected from among men. Now, indeed, it was a male role, okay? They were not egalitarian, okay? It was a male role, and he was selected from among men. But I think part of what he's referencing here is to the Hebrews is that angels don't qualify. He is selected from among men. They're hung up on angels still. He doesn't say it, but I think it's there. I think this is a verse also that reminds us of the necessity of the incarnation. Why did Jesus have to become a man? And that was one of the problems with the Hebrew believers. Men are lower than angels. Why did he have to become a man? Because high priests are selected from among men. And Jesus is our high priest. So he had to become a man. First letter A, he was selected from among men. Angels don't qualify. Letter B, look at the end of verse 1. We're going to pick up the pace here. That he may offer things, okay, among men, appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Secondly, he served the people. He served the people in very specific ways with offerings and sacrifices. Now, they had many prescribed, prescribed different kinds of offerings. They had meal and, and um, plant and crop offerings. And they had blood offerings. So there were gifts that they would bring to God, and then there were sacrifices for sin where blood had to flow. And the priest, the high priest's job was to represent the people. So he served the people by offering up sacrifices. Philip Hughes, a commentator I appreciate on the book of Hebrews, I just copied, it's not, a prof, it's, it's not that complicated, but I copied it word for word, so I wanted to give credit. You need to understand that the high priest was concerned above all with the radical problem of human sinfulness. What was the high priest concerned about? The sinfulness of the people and the need of the people for reconciliation with God. What's reconciliation? It's when someone who is an enemy of God turns around and comes to God and restores that relationship and is made right through the forgiveness of sin. And the high priest served the people with sacrifices because his primary concern was reconciling man to God. That's what a priest does. A priest goes before a sinner and represents him to God and begs for the forgiveness of sin. He makes that deal happen. Thirdly, I want you to see, he says, This high priest, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. The third thing we see is that he is sympathetic and compassionate. And the reason for this, this sympathy, is because he was a man and he could identify with human weakness. That's what he says. Okay, so he's going to represent and serve the people with these offerings and these sacrifices. He's been chosen. He didn't volunteer. It's a position of humility It's a position that necessitates even in Christ, the incarnation. And he said he can have compassion, this high priest, on those who have ignorantly sinned. They haven't been paying attention to God and they've sinned. We do that. Or look what else they do. 
going astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we sin and we go outside the boundaries. We violate the law of God. But the high priest, he doesn't hate the people for it. He loves the people and he wants to restore them to God. Why? Because he's a man and he's subject to the same weaknesses. And you can think somebody's really important. We have an expression. Say, well, look at the pastor. He's like, no, the pastor puts his pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. Right? What do we mean by that? We mean that he's just a man. And that is true. And so was the high priest just a man. But he could relate to the needs of the people because he was a man. Now look at number four, as he offered sacrifices, because of this, he is required, because he's a sinner in weakness, just like the people, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins, verse 3. And so number letter D, he offered sacrifices for sins, number one, for himself, number two, for the people. For himself, he had to offer sin sacrifices, and for the people, he had to do this. He goes on and he says, after he does these sacrifices for sins, and no man takes this honor to himself. So it was seen as an honor to be this high priest, but no man takes this honor to himself, Korah, Korah and your buddies and 250 others. You don't do this. You don't seek it, but he who is called by God. That was Moses' point with Korah. They wanted to appoint themselves, and Moses falls on his face before the Lord because he knows what's going to happen. You are not called by God. You can't go waltzing in there. God's going to kill you. And we've had so many illustrations of this. Remember Uzzah and the ox cart. It's the third week in a row I've referenced it. He touches an ox cart. It's holy. It's with the ark. He, he struck dead. You don't mess around. You can't enter the holy place without a priest. So he, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he was selected by God to serve. The high priest was always selected out of the priests by God in sovereign selection. And the model is Aaron. Now, we're about out of time, and it won't take me long to finish this, really. So just, you always like it when a game goes into overtime. Just pretend we're going into overtime here. It's very exciting. We can't handle it. I don't want to impress you with my Bible knowledge, but Numbers chapter 17 follows Numbers chapter 16. Okay? And I say that for a reason. We just read and touched down in Numbers chapter 16. Remember the story of Korah? He wants to be a priest. Moses knows only God appoints the priest. You don't do this on your own. God swallows him up in the earth, sends down fire. People rebel, sends disease, knocks out in the plague, 14,000. And that's chapter 16 of Numbers. God then tells Moses to do something. It's very interesting to read in Numbers 17. You know how the last couple weeks I've been referencing what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Remember, there's a pot of gold with manna. There's the tablets of the covenant. And there's Aaron's walking staff that budded. That's Numbers chapter 17. Here's what happened. In Numbers chapter 17, after the sons of Korah are swallowed up and the fire does it work, and the people are like, okay, who do, 
God wants to reaffirm that he has appointed Aaron to the priesthood. And he says, Moses, you go get the most important guy in every single tribe. So the head of every tribe get his walking stick. So they get 12 walking sticks. They get Aaron's walking stick. They lean it up against the wall of the fabric of the gate of the tabernacle. And they go home. They sleep. They wake up. They come back the next morning. And the walking sticks are all there. But Aaron's walking stick overnight budded with green leaves and ripe almonds. And I say, whoa, that's pretty cool. What's God saying? Aaron's my man. I have chosen Aaron. And then if you read in Exodus chapter 28, he goes into detail about Aaron as a high priest. And from then on, the priests and the high priests are to be represented by Aaron. So he was selected by God to serve. And the model is Aaron affirmed by his walking stick budding with green leaves and almonds proving that God, he was God's man. So then the writer does this. He immediately in verse five flips over to talking about Christ. Okay. You got what we've done. The first four verses has been high priest 101. Here's the basics of a high priest. He's selected from among men. He serves the people with offerings. He's sympathetic because he's a man like they are. He offers sacrifices for sin He was selected by God to serve. He did not volunteer for the position. Aaron is the model. Now in 5 through 11, he's going to talk about high high priest criteria in relation to Christ. Okay? So how does Christ match up to this criteria? You see, the Hebrew believers were frustrated. We don't know if Jesus is a qualified high priest. This is such a big deal that he's going to go into great detail in chapter 7 on all this stuff. But let's pick up the rest of it so we can go to IHOP, okay? So also Christ, look at 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, God, who said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7, verse 6. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The first thing we see that the writer is trying to convince us of is that letter A, Christ was selected by God to serve. He did not choose to serve in this role. He was selected by God, and that's how high priests get selected. Otherwise, the earth swallows them up. Number one, he was selected to be the son of God, to represent the Godhead in this sonship position. You are my son, today I've begotten you. So the Hebrews are supposed to be impressed with this. Jesus is the son of God. He's not just an ordinary high priest. And he says in another place, and he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, you, speaking of Jesus now, are a, high, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So number two, number one, not only is he a son of God, but number two, he was appointed as a priest forever. And then you say, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, chapter seven is going to tell us much more about him. So let's just look there right now and read verses one through three because he kind of reminds us who Melchizedek is. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's an old word for Jerusalem, 
priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek, whatever we don't know about him, we do know that he was a priest of the Most High God whom Abraham met returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. Abraham had mounted up all his servants and went and got Lot and he killed all those guys. And then he's coming back and he encounters there, evidently in the wilderness, he crosses paths with Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem at that time, a priest of the most high God, to whom also then, verse 2, Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Abraham gave offerings. He gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So whoever Melchizedek was, he was a priest that Abraham believed in and was the real deal. And he gave him a tenth and he offered, gave an offering to him first being translated king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the son of God And he remains a priest continually. Now, when we get to chapter 7, we'll look more closely at Melchizedek. But there's the idea. In Genesis chapter 14 is where you can read. Abraham had an encounter with Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who was appointed by God to be a priest forever. And he references in Hebrews 7, he doesn't even have a genealogy. He's at the least, a type of Christ. We'll figure out more who he is later, but let's go back to our text so we can go to IHOP soon. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Okay, let's go back to our notes. First of all, he's showing them what a high priest entails. Number Letter A, he's selected by God. He was the son of God, and he was appointed a priest forever. Before we move on to the next verses, which I shouldn't have done yet, I wanted to point this out. When did Abraham live in Genesis chapter 14? When did Aaron serve with Moses? Who's first? Who was a priest first? Melchizedek. Aaron was instituted with Moses in the wilderness. All right? What God is saying and what the writer is trying to point out to the Hebrew believers is, you're not impressed with Jesus as your high priest. Abraham, your father, worshiped Melchizedek, and Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, appointed by God himself, outside of the Aaronic priesthood. And so we have in Melchizedek, a type of Christ. And in contrast, Aaron's priesthood began with Moses and ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. In 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed the temple, there was no more temple worship. There is no more high priest. There were no more sacrifices because there is no holy of holies. And it's all destroyed. And so what he's saying is, as Melchizedek was a priest forever appointed by God, Jesus is a priest forever appointed by God. He doesn't need to be of the line of Aaron. And he was sympathetic and compassionate. Remember, it said that he needed to be sympathetic in our criteria 101. Letter B, he was sympathetic and compassionate. He learned obedience. That bothers us, that line. Look what it says. Now he's talking about Jesus in verse 7. Who, Jesus, in the days of his flesh... When he was in the flesh, incarnate, 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. God did answer Jesus' prayer. Verse 7, you could write next to it in your margin, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus is crying out to God. If there would be another way to do this, let it happen. In his humanity, he didn't want to deal with that. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Though he was a son, verse 8, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. What's the writer talking about here? It's letter B. He's, he's showing them that though he was God in the flesh, in his humanity, he could understand and relate to them as a sympathetic and compassionate high priest. That's verse 15 of chapter 4. This, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. How did Jesus, we talked about this last week. And the criteria for the high priest was that he was a sinner. And so therefore he could have compassion on the sinful people he represented. But Jesus did not relate to us because he's a sinner, but he can relate to us because of his humanity. And that's what the writer's proving. And when it says he learned obedience, it didn't mean that Jesus had something he didn't know about already. It it was an experiential. There was no moral lesson to be learned that Jesus needed taught. But experientially, in his human flesh, he can say, I know how you feel. In the garden, I wailed out loud. I was under so much pressure. And and this idea of learned obedience means complete surrender. He learned what it was, the pain of obedience and complete surrender to the Father. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Finally, He offered a final sacrifice, that's verse 8, verse 9, and having been perfected. What does that mean? How could Jesus be perfected? The idea there is that he had fully completed God's plan. He had fully completed God's plan for him. He didn't leave any of it incomplete. And Jesus, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the one who offers the final, ultimate sacrifice. And in chapter 7, I know I keep saying it, he's going to expand even further on this. And he's called by God. He's convincing the Hebrew believers not to give up on this Jesus. He's called by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing and my time is up. And that's where he's going to get distracted. And he's going to remind them that they should be more mature and they should understand more things. And then he's going to give them a warning. And then he's going to come back and finish what he started here in chapter 7 about Melchizedek and this high priest. So let me ask you a question. Who's your priest? How do you think you're going to get to God? You're going to go waltzing into the presence of a holy God? No, you're going to be struck dead. You don't appoint yourself as a priest. Later, we're going to learn that we are priests. But the reason that we have access with the Father is because we have a high priest who's gone before us. You know my buddies that went to the confessional booth? They didn't know it, but it wasn't biblical. Those priests could not represent them to God. Didn't make them safe. Paul said in 2 Timothy... 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. He's our priest, and he's gone before us, and he's the one that makes it safe for us 
to come boldly into the presence of a holy God because we have a priest. So if Jesus is your priest, he sympathizes with your weaknesses. He understands your needs. He represents you to the father and he makes it safe for you to come right to the father. That's a priest. That's a priest. Who's your priest today? The only right answer is my high priest is Jesus Christ. That's it. Will you stand with me, please? Father, take the word of God now and embed it in our hearts. Clarify it through the spirit of of God as we ponder and think and as we go our way. I thank you for this great group today. I trust that these teachings have been valuable at some level and that you would just encourage our hearts as we go out into what is a terrible world. And thank you for the high priest, the Lord Jesus, that we have a priest and we can come running into your presence because we are represented there by our wonderful Lord Jesus, who is worthy. Help us to live for him this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.